0: Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Today's guest is a bit of a departure from our normal conversations. When I talked to Cheryl Colander about silk for sutures, it really got me thinking about the textiles that are used for medical purposes, which took me on a deep, deep dive. There are historically used textiles, like linen and silk for bandages, catgut or other intestines for stitches or sutures, and then we get into modern medicine. There's stuff like nylon being used for sutures, and crazy, massively engineered stuff to support hernias, and polysulfone fibers that work in dialysis machines to filter toxins out of blood the medical textile industry is vast and amazing. We'll be talking about some medical stuff and bodily functions. So if the idea of surgery or medical stuff or talk about menstruation products grosses you out, this may be a good episode for you to skip. Also, if you wanted to have a drinking game and take a shot every time I say interesting in this episode, you will be fall down drunk by the end. I wouldn't recommend it. Let's talk with Alicia Ruthroff. Roth. <music> I'm here with Alicia Ruthroff. She's a product development engineer, and she's living in eastern Pennsylvania.
1: Hey, Alicia. Hey, Miriam. How's it going? Good. So
0: you work in medical textiles. I do. Medical textiles is a really broad category that covers everything from, like, bandaging materials to meshes that are fused into our bodies during surgery. So what kind of medical textiles have you been working with?
1: Uh, Definitely a lot of different kinds. Mm -hmm. So I work for a company called the Secant Group. Mm-hmm. And we primarily work with textile components for devices that'll be implanted into the body. Cool.
0: So uh, what kind of considerations do you have to do like differently for things that are implanted in the body versus things that are external?
1: There's definitely a lot of additional requirements for things that go inside <laughs> the body. <laughs> yeah. Um, it all A lot of it depends on like the area you're implanting the device into mm-hmm. the specific thing it's being used for. Like you have to consider... Um, the material that you're using. Yeah. So is this a device that you want to stay in the body like forever? Yeah. Or is this something that you want to maybe resorb over time? Oh, yeah. And break down as native tissue is growing back in.
0: So let's talk about permanence for a second. When I spoke with Cheryl about the silk sutures, one of the benefits of using silk is that the body can break it down and reabsorb the proteins in the silk, so the sutures didn't have to be removed later, which not only means another visit to the doctor, but another bill for the doctor's time, a bill for the room time, and a bill for the tools used. So if you were looking for a temporary fix for something like stitches, you just need those to hold the skin together until it can fix itself. But sometimes you need something permanent. For instance, a stent is a tube that goes into an artery or another blood vessel to keep it open. That one stays in permanently and the artery will grow around it and keep it in place. It basically just reinforces the artery walls to make sure that they don't close up. Yeah. So like whether or not it should be temporary in the body... Um, I imagine it also matters whether or not it needs to be removed at some future point. Yes, that is also important. My father's actually getting his like third pacemaker. So, you
1: know, like there's uh, there's a little bit of knowledge here for me. Material is important for other things too. So uh, I'm a hand knitter and like the yarns that we work with in hand knitting are, um, they're multi-filament fibers. Yeah. And that's also a type of yarn that you can use in medical textiles.
0: Oh, interesting. So, some of the some of the structure is the same. Yeah, it actually is
1: surprisingly. Cool. Um, but it's depending on the area of implantation. You might not want to use a multifilament fiber. You might want to use a monofilament fiber. Yeah. Uh, it it really depends on um, the cells that you want to integrate into the structure. How okay. much you want them to integrate or not. So if you think about
0: the yarn you knit with, there are multiple tiny threads of filament of wool or cotton or silk or whatever that are all twisted together to form the yarn. That's what makes a multifilament fiber. When we're talking about a monofilament fiber, it's usually something that is extruded, whether it be silk, which is extruded from a gland near a silk caterpillar's mouth, Or a man-made fiber like nylon, which is extruded from a petroleum product like Play-Doh through a garlic press. Think fishing line. That's a monofilament fiber. So uh, what makes a difference in that? Is it like, if it's a multifilament fiber, is it more likely to to adhere to stuff around it? Is there like, you know, rules of thumb in regard to that?
1: Yeah, yeah. You pretty much hit it on the head, like multifilament fibers, as a rule, tend to adhere more because they there's more surface area on them yeah. for cells to integrate. OK. Um, and also fabrics that are made from multifilament, as a rule, tend to be more drapeable. Yeah. Like able to conform. If So if you want something that's stiffer, that'll hold its shape well. OK. Like like something like if you were reinforcing
0: a pelvic floor. You don't want something that's going to drape or like stretch. You would want something that's more rigid, something that's that would actually give support. So it really depends on the on the application. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, for those type of applications, we do tend to more use like monofilament yarn. So essentially, they look like fishing line. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So, uh, what kinds of things are most important when you're developing a medical textile?
1: Uh, it all depends on the application. Uh, usually yeah. customers come to us and they have some idea of like, okay, I need a textile that's going to drape well, or I need a textile that has exactly 100 micron pore size, mm. or it needs to be this strong. Yeah. So you've, you're given
0: some parameters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, And then, and then within that, you, you can just run with it as long as it still functions for the purpose that it's, <laughs>
1: that it's supposed to. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. That's um cool. it's yeah, it's my job as a product development engineer to basically figure out what textile process is going to work for this application cool. and get them what they need.
0: Okay, so they don't usually come in saying, you know, oh, I need I need this kind of monofilament and like not with, you know, you're, you're not manufacturing, you're engineering. So they come with like a problem or like, you know, parameters, but not understanding exactly what they need. And then it's your job to figure it out.
1: Yep. Um, it's actually, it's a mixture. Some customers, especially ones we've had for a long time, will come to us like, Okay, we need a plain weave that is this strong or this, usually this thin. Mm-hmm. But a lot of our customers, especially new customers, come to us and they definitely rely on us for guidance.
0: Cool. So in the yarn world, we've been having conversations about the, uh, more sustainable production. And with the aging segment of baby boomers, I imagine that the demand for, for medical textiles and implantables especially is high. So is this sustainability conversation happening in the medical textile field as
1: well? It definitely is. Um, it's not to a huge extent yet. Uh, like my company specifically, we don't have too many customers coming to us looking for anything made from like bamboo or like banana fibers, but, um, I can definitely talk about how in the greater medical textile field. Yeah, please. So there are definitely some really cool, like startup companies out there that are working to make, um, menstrual pads and other menstrual products from sustainable fibers. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of companies that use, uh, banana fibers. That's cool. What's really cool about those is that they come from basically the scraps of like the banana tree after oh, it's already been hard after the bananas have already been harvested. So it's material that would already be going to waste. Yeah. And we're able to get fibers from it and we're able to, they're able to process these fibers in such a way that, uh, they can make menstrual pads that are comfortable, um, so they're nice to wear. Yeah, and I in, in as assume, much as it's ever nice to have a period. Well, yeah. I assume fairly absorbent. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yeah, very absorbent and the best part is they're biodegradable. That's great. So they're not taking up space in a landfill.
0: Yeah. That's wonderful. Okay, so I have a bit of a soapbox about this. So bear with me. But menstruation is one of those topics like mental illness that we tend not to talk about. It tends to be taboo. But so many of us deal with it on a regular basis, that I think it's absurd that we don't talk about it. First of all, in countries where we have smartphones and free time to listen to podcasts, we are extraordinarily fortunate that we have access to such a variety of menstrual products that mean we can keep going about our daily lives, even when we're shedding blood and tissue. We don't miss days of work. We don't miss school. But there are girls in the world that have to stop going to school when they start menstruating. That makes me horrifically sad. Some of them are forced into sexual encounters earlier than they would wish in order to pay for their menstrual products, risking pregnancy and disease. If you would like to help with that, there is an organization called Days for Girls that provides a reusable menstrual kit so girls can have freedom, control over their reproductive system, and stay in school. Aside from this, if you look at the sheer amount of garbage our menstrual products produce, it's astonishing – Much has been made by disruptor startups about the ingredients and processes that go into our pads and tampons not needing to be disclosed, but in addition to that, it creates so much waste. The plastic that lines a maxi pad isn't going to biodegrade. I am a hardcore advocate for the menstrual cup. Aside from being reusable and sterilizable, I never have to go to the store again in the middle of the night to buy tampons. And in the same way that I am trying to reduce my food waste and my use of plastics, I can keep pads and tampons out of the landfills with my menstrual cup. I love that it puts me in better touch with my cycle and leaves me with more understanding of my body. I encourage you to look into a way to make your monthly cycle more earth friendly. If you're not into the menstrual cup idea especially if you're grossed out by blood, then I recommend you look into the banana fiber pads that Alicia mentioned. Banana fibers are 50% more absorbent than what is currently being used in menstrual pads. So even if you're just looking for a better option for pads, this might be a good solution for you. I've dropped some links in the show notes. So are, are natural fibers in medical textiles, do they tend to be external things like bandaging materials and stuff like that rather than internal?
1: yeah typically, um there is already a lot of devices or implantable devices out there that we have a lot of knowledge on in terms of what materials they're made from, and they're primarily from not from like non natural materials, yeah,
0: so like um like polymer based and things like that. Uh, yep, yeah, that makes sense.
1: A lot of people, yeah, a lot of you <laughs> will probably be surprised to know that. I, I would say one of the most common materials I work with, like, day-to-day is polyester.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, polyester, like, not great to wear, but <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine it functions, it functions pretty well inside of a body because it's not going to biodegrade. It'll hold up. You could knit it. You could weave it. There's a million different ways to use it. And it's probably fairly uh, easy to get <laughs> compared to some yeah. other stuff. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it is. So, what kind of I, things are you making with polyester? We are making all sorts of things. Uh, we make woven material that goes into um, artificial heart valves, which is really cool. Yeah.
0: So does it just uh, reinforce the like so on the like the valves themselves, so making them
1: flexible? It actually it you typically goes around the outside of the valve. Okay. So it, it's more for um, anchoring the device to where the um, native valve. Okay. Was so it, like attaching the uh, the artificial
0: valve to to the existing like flesh valve right. inside the heart, where like so basically where it's cut and then <laughs> like attached.
1: Yeah, there's typically um, some sort of material there that's meant to to help anchor it, yeah. um, to help with cell integration and things yeah. like that. Well, and especially if
0: you've if you know you've had heart problems, you could probably also have very um, fragile. I guess friable is technically the word, but like fragile, um, you know, valves and those things are like. It's astonishing how how thin and. And delicate the insides of our body can be. (laughs) It really is. That's crazy. What other kinds of
1: things are you making? Let's see. Uh, We make sutures. We make um, like tethers for orthopedic applications. So for like a scoliosis surgery for orthopedic repairs, um, like when you're repairing like the ACL or a tendon or something like that. So, um, things, does it like it doesn't replace the ACL? Or does it just like help it stay in place? That I'm not sure. That's interesting. More up to our customers. Ah, but, I see. Cool. And we make um, we do make a lot of surgical meshes that are uh, meant to like support organs during surgery mm-hmm. or for like hernia repair mm-hmm. or uh, pelvic region prolapse. Oh yeah, yeah, pelvic pelvic floor prolapse.
0: Um, yeah, <laughs> I I worked in medical billing compliance for a while, and um and we did a lot of um you know because it was it was university, um, basically Medicare and Medicaid compliance, so there was a lot of pelvic floor stuff happening.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine <laughs>
0: a lot. Okay, so if you're a younger woman or like me, are not going to have children and have never had children. <laughs> This may not be on your radar, but after you push a lot of babies, or one really, out of your birth canal, the whole set of muscles that keep all of your organs inside your pelvis can weaken. This can result in a whole range of symptoms, from peeing a little when you sneeze or laugh to a complete prolapse, which is basically when all those organs start falling into your vaginal canal and even, in severe cases, falling out of your vagina. It's terrifying. Don't Google it. Trust me. So the treatment is to put a mesh in there that the muscles can grow into that will not stretch under the weight of the organs. So the mesh takes the place of the weakened muscles and keeps everything in place. By the way, men can have pelvic floor issues too. So everybody do your kegels. That shit is important. So um, what kinds of things do you have to engineer before a medical textile is ready to be used?
1: So we have to figure out basically everything from the beginning. We're a lot of times our customers will have input on the material but maybe we need to figure out the size should it be monofilament multifilament mm-hmm. does the material need to have twist in it like if we oh. if you're depending on the process you're going to put it through you might want twist you might not want twist
0: yeah
1: does it need to be knitted woven braided um intern and then we need to figure out like the patterns Mm-hmm. the pore size, the density of the structure. And uh, one of my favorite things to do is figuring out how to w- do what we call finishing mm-hmm. on the structure. So I'm sure I, you knit, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So you know that if you make like a stockinette stitch, that thing curls. Yes. Do so you normally- have garter
0: stitch edges on, on knitted
1: <laughs> internal devices? <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> oh man if I could add that I would but really we are we are trying to figure out how to like add that kind of stuff in or to do some sort of heat processing on it after so it stops curling all the time or if if we're knitting at it to get a certain pore size you might want to like stretch and heat the fabric after to make sure it keeps that pore size Mm,
0: yeah (laughs) That makes sense. So, uh, how has your your experience as a knitter influenced what you do at work?
1: It's actually helped me understand knitting a lot. Interesting. Like just the, even uh, machine knitting. Yeah. So, and surprisingly, even uh, warp knitting. So, warp knitting is a type of machine knitting that w- rather than having a bunch of stitches that are only using one or multiple ends at the at the same time mm-hmm. to um, keep creating loops it had each stitch like each column column basically is controlled by its own end and then those ends interact with each other yeah to produce um, a series of interconnecting loops
0: yeah it's it's really interesting it's like like if each column of stitches had its own yarn source yeah and then they just like interact they hook together as they're being made so that you have one you know one yarn source for each column of of stitches, and they just loop
1: up. Yeah, exactly. It it didn't originate with any sort of hand process. Yeah. Uh, port knitting started, like, as a machine process. So, there. so it's kind of backwards from, from all other knitted structures.
0: <laughs> right? Interesting.
1: Yeah, so there's nothing, unfortunately, that you can really compare it to. The most similar hand process I've found is bobbin lace yeah because you have all those ends and the fabric is formed yes with the way those ends interact with each other yeah that makes a lot of sense
0: to help you visualize this let me put it this way you know how intarsia overlaps the two strands of yarn to connect them where you stop knitting stitches with the one color and move on to the second color it's sort of like that except that every column is a new color so every single stitch is linked to the ones next to it and each column of stitches is made with its own source of yarn. This is also how bobbin lace is made. Each bobbin has its yarn source, and the bobbins move over and under each other to link the threads together to form patterns.
1: Are you also a weaver? I have done weaving in the past, um, but I sold my loom a while ago (laughs) because I just wasn't using it. That's fair.
0: (laughs) what kinds of woven structures do you get to use in medical textiles? Do you generally do like plain weave or do you like get, you know, crazy and do
1: twills? (laughs) We uh, actually go pretty crazy with our wovens. We have, we are very fortunate to have a very awesome weave designer Mm -hmm. on our team. And we have a lot of capabilities with the looms that we have. So we can make anything from like a tubular structure to, like a 3D orthogonal weave. Um, we can put really cool patterns on the wovens if we want them. It, it's awesome. Oh my god,
0: 3D orthogonal weaves are crazy. It's like if you took multiple layers stacked on top of each other and wove them together through the fabric layers, but instead of being made in parts and joined, they're made in one step. It's super cool.
1: Is there a medical reason to put a pattern on a woven? It would sort again, to this is such a cop out answer, but it would really <laughs> depend on the application.
0: Like for instance, it's you know, like any kind of you know, like if you if you can think of an instance why you would, that would be helpful.
1: Yes, for maybe like a tether, you might want it to slip less. Okay. So you could put you could change the pattern so it's more slip resistant. Okay. Interesting. Or you might want a very a very smooth surface. So like then satin you wouldn't kind of yeah.
0: weave. So satin, um, for listeners, satin, the way it's woven, it jumps multiple warp threads and just catches occasionally so that it basically has a solid um, single layer of unidirectional fibers going across, across the top of the fabric. That's what makes satin shiny because you don't see the interaction of warp and weft. You just see one directional fibers unidirectional fibers so anything that you're really excited about that you can tell me about
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I do really love warp knitting it's one of the things that I definitely specialize in yeah Um, all of our engineers sort of specialize in a different I mean a different technology yeah and I have done a lot of work with warp knitting it's so different from weft knitting yeah but it's very similar at the same time. And you can create so many different kinds of patterns using warp knitting. You can a- actually, a lot of laces are made with warp knitting. Oh, interesting. And what's what's really cool about the technology is that it sort of combines like the drapeability of like weft knitting, which is the most similar to hand knitting, mm-hmm. and but the strength and durability of weaving
0: oh that's cool because it wouldn't stretch the same because it's not continuous continuous strand of yarn right interesting so how does it stretch differently like i, I can tell that it would but like does it i imagine it wouldn't stretch uh width wise as much it
1: can actually um it does you're right it doesn't stretch quite as much but you you can change the pattern yeah uh so that it does stretch more in the width direction or more in the warp direction. Okay. More on the diagonal if you want. Ah. If you're going real crazy. Yeah, well, I guess
0: depending on where you placed it in the body and what the application was, it would need to stretch in different ways, just depending.
1: Mm-hmm. Curious. Uh, something that we make a lot of um, are the fabric component for endovascular stent grafts. Mm-hmm. So you have this really big artery that runs from your heart all the way down through your abdomen mm-hmm. and then splits off into your, uh, into your legs. Yeah. And that's called your aorta. Yep. And you can get an aneurysm in your aorta. And yeah. what's happening there is the walls of it are weakening and starting to expand.
0: Yeah. And sometimes you can get like, like a bubble forming from the inner sections and then blood can get trapped there. It's not good.
1: Yep. It's, re- it's real bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's it's also it's very dangerous because yeah. it's it's hard to detect like it's pretty asymptomatic. Yeah. And um, previously, like before, I think before like the '60s, there just wasn't. You couldn't do anything. No, it would just burst and
0: then you'd die, and nobody knew what had happened until they cut you open. Yeah, and that's
1: that's awful. Yeah. But they developed this technology where. It's basically this fabric tube that they um, implant inside of you, uh, and they actually use these like really pretty small tubes called catheters, mm-hmm. to, and they just cut a small incision in your leg, and they sort of put it up there, and they deploy the fabric tube, and that's what the blood runs through.
0: So it, goes, it fits inside the aorta? Yes. Cool just to strengthen the walls of the aorta so that you don't have an aneurysm. Exactly. Does it fuse into the aorta?
1: Yeah, it pretty much anchors itself in there like That's cool. Once your once the aneurysm is there, those walls never return to yeah. being normal. Yeah. They're they're going to be weak forever. So basically that fabric tube just acts as the new aorta.
0: That's really cool, and it's awesome that they can like make an incision in your leg and move something all the way up toward like toward your heart.
1: Yeah, I. It's funny because that's actually related to one of the biggest challenges that we have. Yeah, which is making things thinner and smaller.
0: Mm, because the the vein is going to be, uh, well, still it's still an artery at that point, but it's going to be smaller in the leg than it is near the heart. Right. So it has to be collapsible or small enough, thin enough to go all the way up without catching. exactly.
1: Ah. And basically, as the medical device world is advancing, more and more surgeries're aiming to do them through through catheters yeah and, and laparoscopically and exactly because open surgery is very dangerous.
0: well you, there's more risk of infection. there's more risk you know that like it takes longer to heal from it. It's like super complicated. And you have yeah. to crack open someone's chest
1: yeah exactly so i ideally we want we want to be able to do basically everything yeah. laparoscopically so that you can just take the device put it into this tiny little tube and then just all, all you have to recover from is this tiny cut yeah and having a new device in your body but, yeah but whatever. like
0: <laughs> you know internal like our skin our skin tends to you know, recover more quickly than the things underneath it. But like, even anytime you make an incision, you risk, you run the risk of the tissue underneath adhering to the skin and like you get scar tissue there that connects them and then you can get a fistula. And like, I clearly know more than I need to about medicine. but (laughs) um, (laughs) Medicine's awesome. Right. Uh, My my father was a doctor, um, but most of my medical knowledge has come from just me being a geek and you know advocating for my own health so
1: (laughs) you're in good company there I'm a huge huge geek about this stuff yeah so yeah anytime anytime
0: you like do massive surgery and you like crack open someone's chest or you like you know make a big incision you run infinite like infinitely more risk than you would if you just like poke a little star-shaped hole and like stick some stuff in there to look around exactly and then you know like you run the risk of even like nicking arteries and then somebody could bleed out before you could fix it but (laughs) surgery
1: is complicated yeah Yeah. and we don't we don't want that to happen no we do
0: not (laughs) awesome In the editing of this episode, I had such a crazy flashback of memory. My dad had brought home some laparoscopy tools for some reason, and I remember playing with them. There was one that was a scope that had a light on the end, and you could look through it with magnification, and there was one that had a little grabber grappling thing on the end, and I swear to God, I used it to pick up everything for a couple of days.
1: Yeah, so all of our customers, you know, they're coming to us and we're like, we love this, but make it thinner. Yeah, yeah. We're working really hard on trying to find ways to um, use new technology and use tech and new ways of using technology we already have mm-hmm. to make our products thinner yeah. and more accessible for this, that kind of application.
0: Yeah. And then like, I can't even imagine that like, there's also, also if you're talking about like applications for these things in children, then you've got even smaller <laughs> that you have oh, to get because yeah. they're just tiny humans. Very small. <laughs>
1: Actually, with with children, it gets really complicated for devices because they
0: grow. Oh, yeah. So the device would need to to either be replaced as they grow or it would need to grow with them. Exactly. Because you wouldn't want the device hindering the growth of the person.
1: Right. But if you think about like a little baby, tiny baby heart, and if you replace like a heart valve in it, that heart's going to grow. And even even laparoscopically, like that's a big surgery. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh God, that's infinitely more complicated.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. I have so much respect for pediatric surgeons. Seriously.
0: Do you guys design any devices for, for children? Um, Not specifically.
1: I don't believe. More, more like the adult population. Yeah. I think most of our customers are That's primarily what they're going for. Well, that's what most of the people in the,
0: uh, you know, in hospitals and in need of medical care are right now. So yeah, (laughs) with all the aging baby boomers,
1: yeah, as our population's getting older, there's definitely a much higher demand for, for devices to fix problems.
0: Yeah, well, and living longer too. So, you know, instead of having, having um, an aortic aneurysm that would kill you now, like you get it fixed with this kind of mesh or whatever and then and then you live another 10 years exactly and have more health problems that need fixing
1: (laughs) yeah so and we want people to to live happily and comfortably yeah as comfortably as possible
0: yeah awesome so there is a question that i ask everyone in season two if you could be reincarnated as any animal what animal would you be
1: I, I first of all, I love that question. I love it. I loved it the second I read it. <laughs> I think and I, I've thought about this pretty hard. <laughs> I, I honestly think I would want to be a cat.
0: Yeah. So I think this is the top of my list as well. Like like a domestic, you like well taken care of house
1: cat. Yep. Like specifically if I could choose, I would be my mom and dad's cat. <laughs> because that cat is the most pampered cat on the planet. She gets little bites of wow (laughs) she has beds all over the house that of course she doesn't use because she's a cat cat. (laughs) she um unfortunately hurt her leg not too long ago and my parents have literally carried her everywhere like a little empress oh good lord she has the best life yeah
0: seriously i make my cats work (laughs) right (laughs) i can we have our, our cat stormageddon can't jump for shit He's, that is a great name. Yeah, it's uh for those not in the know, it's a Doctor Who reference, but um, yeah, he's he's really bad at jumping, and so like oh, I've been I've been trying to train him to like work his abs so that he'd be better at jumping. <laughs> so like we've been we've we've got the really good dog treats that are basically like smoky jerky, right? And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, hold it up and he has to, like, basically, like, stand on his back legs like a grizzly bear to get the treat. Oh, so, like, we've been, we've been playing grizzly bear with the treats so that he will work his abs. That is fantastic. Because <laughs> he tries to jump up on stuff and then scrambles and falls down,
1: like, onto oh, laps no. on chairs. He's really bad. Oh, does he take stuff down with him? That's what oh, Flutters does. He
0: puts his claws in and tries to take your leg with him. Oh, geez. So I have to make sure his claws are trimmed regularly, but um, he scrambles
1: trying to get onto the bed. It's hilarious. That's so funny. Butters tries to do that with my pet. Butters does that with the bathroom counter. Oh, like no. He will jump up, um, but I, I wouldn't have made enough room for him. So yeah, he, he just takes down everything on the counter. <laughs> my toothbrush, my medicine, my makeup all down. Well, obviously the bathroom counter is the
0: best place. That's where all the cool stuff is to knock over, so.
1: Oh yeah, and it has the bathroom sink water, oh, which is the, the most best water. water.
0: Yeah. We have uh we have a cat fountain because uh our our last cat was drinking like from our running toilet because he really wanted running <laughs> water and when I was like that. I'm nixing that right now, man. <laughs> like we're just going to get you a
1: fountain. I, I actually have that too. Butter still wants the sink water.
0: Well,
1: some cats want to stuff their
0: face in your cup, too. Obviously, the water you're drinking is the best water.
1: Of course. Otherwise, you wouldn't put it in this tiny thing. Right? (laughs) Awesome. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks again to Alicia for talking to us. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and found it as fascinating as I did. And thank you to my dear friend Karen York, who knew Alicia from her textile engineering program and hooked me up for the interview. You can follow me in all my making at Miriam Felton Knit Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram as MimKnits. Thank you so much to the patrons who keep this podcast paid for. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. If you can't support the podcast with those dollar bills, you can rate and review it in iTunes, or share the podcast with your fiber-loving friends. The more the merrier for sure. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook, search for Yarn Stories Podcast with no space between yarn and stories, Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod, or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with a deep, deep dive into superwash wool processes. It's gonna be awesome. Bye. Hey babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet? Ha <laughs>